Last week, we were looking at, at fruit and how we can bear good fruit for, for God. And one of the passages that we're looking at was out of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And by virtue of looking and, and self-evaluation with our fruit, we should be able to prove whether or not we are following God as true disciples. I want you to digest what I just said. Don't let it gloss over. What I mean by that, when I say for us to evaluate whether we're true disciples, you should never sit on your laurels and think, I'm it. I'm a true disciple because, and then just gloss over it and just accept it. Versus evaluating and see, is what I'm doing based upon what God's word explicitly reveals with regard to this idea of true discipleship, or is it based upon all that I've taught for all these years, then I just accept that that's what it is. Because sometimes what we teach in the pulpit, what we practice as a group, can be so readily acceptable over the, over the months, years, decades, and even centuries that we just take it for granted as truth. Rather than let the scriptures actually show us it's something like, but the scriptures do guide us that's what i've been uh, reading and interesting sometimes when you can read something for years and years and years and then then all of a sudden uh, as some have said you read it with fresh eyes not that it's anything new under the sun but you read it from a, a different perspective and that perspective can be where you grow where you're like i didn't see that before kind of like the whole thing at brookdale where we study the word elohim Everyone's saying, like, I've never studied that word before, and now I'm seeing it differently. That's what I mean, that we get to see these things, and we get to see what it's like as we come to the Lord and walk with him, and as a result, have that walk worthy of his calling. So that said, I want us to, to note this. Let me see if I can make sure I'm on the right slide. Here we go. I want us to note that when we're talking about this concept that we are not of this world, as the title said. And as was read by Jesse in the scripture reading, right? I pray for these. These, these are not of the world. The, in these, these individuals who follow after me. That we know what that means and how to distinguish. How do you know that this person's a Christian and he's walking like Christ? So, real quickly, this first slide. Real quick. We could have used other passages, but these are pretty, pretty close to as, as explicit as they can be. First of all, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream... <laughs> In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Daniel's brought along board, and he is able to give the interpretation of this dream. And one of the things that he says here in Daniel, chapter 2, is very striking with regard to this kingdom, the one that is going to be for the, the future, if you will. And I want you to read that with me, if you will. So I'm going to get over to Daniel, and I, I want us to see just how beautiful these words are that Daniel says. Daniel chapter 2, let me back up here, go up to this verse. In, these day, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This is after the, this image that he has of the statue and all the previous kingdoms and how they are um, portrayed through this image, through this statue. This kingdom of God will, um, God will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, that great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. What he's saying is, you got all these kingdoms that are on its way, that, you know, here and then going on in the future, but there's just going to be this one kingdom, not made with hands, not going to be of this world. This is the kingdom that will supersede all other kingdoms, and it will never end. Sometime later, Daniel has his own dream, and it's being interpreted to him in his dream. And so in Daniel chapter 7, when you read through this, he says as he continues on in this dream, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. And then to him, the Son of Man that is, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and here's Daniel in his own dream, and they're basically confirming each other. And so as was later given in this chapter 7, it's interpreted for him of what that means. So Jesus' kingdom is unlike any other kingdom, right? In fact, Jesus says as much when he speaks to Pilate, you know, you're talking about calling people over to, to help my cause. If my kingdom were of this world... We'd be fighting right now. My kingdom's not in this world. It's a very different kind of kingdom that we, children of God, have entered in. We know this already. We know this truth. But sometimes we need reminding of it because of the way we live life. And sometimes the lines can get blurred because we're human beings and we live here on planet Earth. And we have earthly ways of living that sometimes it's, well, are you a Christian or are you not? Because, I mean, we go to work like people who are non-believers. Right? We eat food. We wear clothes. So what distinguishes us? And without jumping the gun too much, I want to make it very clear. Sometimes we, as in the name of saying, okay, because we are not of this world, we, we cannot look like, so therefore, if they do this, we go opposite extreme. And we look at Christianity as a, as a pendulum reaction to where the world is, and this has got to be the way truth is, without actually seeing what the scriptures tell us. Right? And so that's what I'm wanting us to do this morning. And so by, by the end of this lesson, hopefully we'll have a, a clear distinction of what we are talking about. Right? So obvious question is, who's in this kingdom? The one that Jesus built. And most of us here would already say what Christians are. Because that's who comes based upon the calling of Jesus into this kingdom. And you'd be right. We are told by those who are walking according to the flesh... And then are transformed because of their heart, right? He, th he says, Paul does to the church at Rome, Thanks be to God that you obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So we know that we are coming into this kingdom with a heart that desires to walk the way of God. In other words, we have made ourselves by virtue of free will, by our volition, a choice to say, 
no longer will I want to live according to my will, but we want to, I want to live according to your will, God. I want to be a slave not to sin, but I want to be a slave to righteousness. That's what chapter 6 is all about, right? So we know that those who choose from their heart to live God's way and not their own are those who are going to come into this kingdom. These are individuals who have died to sin and raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are all about. We're Christians. We made a choice to die to sin. We made a choice to walk and to be raised up by the glory and grace of our God to newness of life. That's who belongs in this kingdom. right? In other words, what we are saying is we're putting off this man of sin. When I go into that watery grave of baptism, it's a removal of that, that conscience of the filth of flesh. right? That's the concept with a good conscience, a clear conscience, a clean conscience. Then I'm put off that man of flesh, and I'm wanting to put on Jesus Christ. So, God, here I am. I'm at your disposal. I'm your clay. Shape me, mold me. That's what we're looking at right now, right? And so that's the Bible's focus. That's what we were looking at when, when we say, okay, now, here you are. You want to live like God. Where's your fruit? That's what we were talking about last week. And so what does that fruit actually look like? And that's why John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, if you got bad fruit, it's because you have a bad tree. But the tree is good because the tree is Jesus, right? Jesus said, I am the vine, a.k.a. tree. You are the branches. You can do nothing without me. If you're truly in me, you're going to be bearing fruit and lots of it. And therefore, verse 8, you prove to be disciples of mine. And he continues with that thought then in verse 9 following. And particularly when you go into the, the picture of this idea of living like Jesus, then there's going to be some ramifications to that. And that's how you know that you've been separated from this world, that you truly are not of this world. And that's the thing that we're going to focus on then for this lesson. So I want to distinguish distinctions. All right? So that's what we're talking about. How do you distinguish distinctions? Because, as I mentioned, sometimes in the name of Christianity, we just say, okay, here's what the world does. We're going to do the opposite. Therefore, we're, we're different. Case in point, the Essenes in the first century, in the name of wanting to, to stand out as Jews and to be separate from the world, they physically, literally separated themselves as much as they were able while living life from the world. They will live in caves. I mean, literally live in caves. That's how some do it. That's what the Amish do so that the Amish can say we are not of this world. So we're going to have this community and we're separate from the world. Is that what God desired? Is that what he meant? And some believe in, in all of their hearts as sincerely as they can. Yeah, that's what God meant. I want you to see this concept, okay? Because I want us to see here's where some in the name of Christianity, in my point of view, misses the picture of what it's like to be in the world but not of the world, okay? Because it's kind of hard to reach the world when you are not communicating with the world. Really hard. It's hard for us to pray for David Foster unless we reach the gospel to David Foster. We would not have known him if we stayed in our cave. I'm going to use our cave as this broom right here, okay? 
if all our bubble is is right in this room, then we just wait for David to come into this building and then we can reach the gospel with him. I don't think that looks like the Great Commission, by the way. So here's what I mean when I'm talking about this. I want you to turn to Colossians 2. I've read this passage a few times over the years. I'm going to be reading it some more. If, if what I have in my sermon for next Sunday will come to pass, then this passage is a springboard for it. All right. So Colossians chapter 2. I want us to read this passage and let it soak in with this very first point so that we can distinguish these distinctions on what the fruit looks like so that we can see how we are not of this world while we still live in this world. All right, Colossians chapter 2. Back up earlier, but I'm going to just, just pick up right here in verse 20. Could have read from verse 11 on, give more context, but you get the idea from here. Therefore, if you died with Christ... Right? All that we talked about. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Right? Here you are. You've died to this world. Right? So now you're being separated from the world. You're now drawn near to Jesus Christ. And then here's what you do. Why, though, as you've been subjecting yourselves to regulations like... Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. Let it sink in. You go from this world that is full of the flesh, right? Materialism, greed, all these different things, flesh, works of the flesh. You come into Christ, but you're going to appeal to the flesh to distinguish from the rest of the world. And so, do not taste. I mean, do not taste. Do not handle, right? Do not touch. He says, all these things concern which perish with the using. And these are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. They're not from God. These are self-imposed laws, self-imposed regulations to distinguish yourself from the world. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but it's self-imposed religion. An appearance of wisdom. Could you not make the case, don't touch, don't taste, then you look different from the world? Could that be the case made? Because that's what Paul is using as a rhetorical question. And the obvious thing is, well, then if, you're, if the world is doing this and you're not doing it, don't you stand out as different from the world? Well, in one sense, yes. Can there be benefit from that? I would argue yes. You can benefit from not touching, not tasting, not handling. You can use human arguments for these things. Paul is saying these are nothing more than an appearance of wisdom. All right, then where's the true distinction if that's the case? Well, before going to that further distinction, he says, this is an appearance of wisdom. This is false humility. This is the neglect of the body. This is something that is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? What he's saying is, here's the indulgence of the flesh. Here's the way the world works. Right? Give it all to me. All the flesh. You're saying, 
No. None of it. Nothing like it. Staying away from everything. And he's saying, this is every bit as equal to that. There is no profit here than there is of any profit here. No profit against, the indulgent, against that. There's no profit. So where's the profit? What is he talking about? And that's what he was dealing with in the earlier part of this, this chapter. And we're dealing with in various other scriptures. And so it's this that he was tackling. This legalistic mindset that says, okay, I've not done this. I've done this. Therefore, I am a true disciple. That's the reason why many of the Jews would say to the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to, and then they start going back to the old law. And if you guys remember what was said with regard to the law, he said, that was nailed. Including all its ordinances. Oh, then we got the new law. Well, what does the new law teach? What are the laws in Christ? Brethren, we've studied this many, many times. I've given many of the passages about the laws of Jesus Christ. We've read them over and over and over. Sometimes it needs, needs more time to sink in. Here's what we saw in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And here's what Paul is saying in 1 Peter 4 and Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, is the distinction. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to read this passage. And again, we can read the passage like above here, make man-made laws, or we can read it with this in mind right here. And I believe this is crucial. Christians are to apply God's spirit to life's many situations. So let's see how that plays out in a very practical way and see that. 1 Peter chapter 4, passage that is quoted often um, in the way that we walk with our God versus walk with the way of the world. So, verse 1, 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, notice his point, arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. Instead, it should be for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. What is the will of the Gentiles? Now, this is the will of the world, not the will of God, right? The will of the world, or Gentiles, he says, is lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, and in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you. You see what the writer is doing, what Peter's doing? He's taking all kinds of thoughts, and he's contrasting it and then bringing judgment, kind of like the flood, the great flood. That's where the world was living, where every thought was evil continuously. And then they think you're the strange one, the way you're living your life. Well, what was strange about it? We'll see in just a second. The writer goes on to say, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel, the good news, was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. My opinion in this concept is 
that when the gospel is proclaimed to those who are alive physically but dead spiritually, then the reality can hit for them that they can come to life. Isn't that what Ephesians 2 is all about? You were dead in the trespass of your sins, but God, through his rich mercy and grace, raised you up in newness of life, that you are a workmanship of God. Right? That's what he is saying here. And so here's where we talk about God's spirit as a result. You don't walk according to the world. How do you walk? Galatians chapter 5. Remember the fruit of the spirit. That's God's spirit in you. He's saying, here's what you do. This idea of love and kindness, these are words that he is using to apply wisdom and love to your walk. So let me give you some illustration. And I remember this as a young preacher because I was taught it. And I don't know what it's been, what's been taught here before I came here, so this may clash in some regard. Maybe it will be consistent with some, what, some person preaching in the pulpit in Bible class teaching or whatever. I was taught as a young Christian that Christians don't dance. It is a sin for my sake. Am I the only one that was taught that? Or others taught? Dancing is a sin. Anyone here? Okay. Okay, dancing is a sin. All right. And then I'm reading through the scriptures, and of course, there's nothing that says dancing is sin itself, and then you get these passages where David is dancing, and someone says, see, dancing was sin because David was condemned by his wife. And then I was reading the context going, wait a second. Was that why? Because he was dancing? Because she says, you made yourself look like a fool. You look like one of the commoners. And David was humbling himself by being with the common people and rejoicing. And she didn't like it. I was like, I think that's a misuse of that passage. And then I was reading up all these other places, and I thought, I came to the conclusion, and thus I gave a sermon, not everyone liked it, um, that dancing in and of itself was not sin. What I said in the sermon, and this is, I guess, 15 years ago now, maybe it's the kind of dance you're involved in. Like, is it lascivious for a father to dance with his daughter at their wedding as some practice? Because some Christians will say, absolutely. What? You're holding your, your daughter and you're, you're dancing a sweet song. Or some that would do, I don't know, I'm not into country dancing, but the four square, or I don't know, it's a square dance or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The ballroom dance. I used what I do know, which I don't dance this way, but I have family that do and I have friends that do, the hula dance. And let me tell you the difference between hula and Tahitian. Tahitian is where the hips go real quick. Hula, even like Tahitian, it's telling a story. And if you'll notice, a lot of the hula dancers, they're very modestly dressed, by the way. So you might go, well, hula is this, and they're all naked and everything. Get your Polynesian groups right. That's all I say. <laughs> like if I said Asian, well, which kind, you know? Same thing. And so what I'm saying is in that, in that particular sermon that dancing in and of itself was, what not, was not sin. Lasciviousness is sin. Lewdness is sin. Can we distinguish? In other words, we start making up laws, dancing in sin. And because dancing is sin, the law that has been made, you know what else is sin? Junior prom. 
Junior prom is sin because you know what happens at junior prom? Dancing. And you also what has happened at junior prom? Kids bring in their, their drinks and they spike the juice. That's what you see on movies. So you know it's true. It happens everywhere. And I was taught this after, like months after I became a Christian, but literally soon after becoming a Christian and before I was taught that dancing was a sin and so on and so forth, I remember, um, this is just a personal anecdote to give this situation. Uh, I was elected as president of the United States and Canada for a special education organization. And there was an inauguration for the president, the president's ball. And so I'm supposed to be there there's dancing and there's alcohol and all kinds of shenanigans and what have you. And so anyway, I'm going to go. And I go to this because it's in honor of, of the president. And, and so I get there and young lady after young lady, because uh, for other reasons, I don't ask girls to dance kind of thing. But I was like, would you like to dance? I'm like, no, no, thanks. No, no, thanks. No, no, thanks. Why aren't you dancing? You're so weird. And I said, Come here. Let's have a Bible study. We're in, the, we're in all the disco lights and everything. Come, let's have a Bible study. And I was I was in a table with a because not too many guys in special education 30 years ago, but I'm at the table, young ladies, and I'm sharing with them my love for God. I chose not to dance just because I didn't want to dance. I wanted to share the gospel. And I remember with all the drinks that are being free-flowing in that area, I didn't partake of anything. Did I sin by virtue of my involvement of being at a dance? Did I sin where there's people drinking alcohol? I did not. Some might have said, Mitch, that was foolish of you. You sinned because you were associated with sinners and so on and so forth. I strongly, to this day, disagree. I can tell you from that moment, there was a young lady that wanted to learn more of Jesus. Christians are to apply God's spirit to life's many situations, not make up laws that are man-made laws. The reason why I share this point and, and labor this point is there is a distinction among distinctions because it's easy to get caught up in if you are a Christian you cannot, male or female, wear anything above your ankles. And we can go to the Bible to prove it. And you look for a Bible passage that says, that, you know, whatever you can find, and then it'll show you that's why. And then someone else comes along the, lay, the, the way and says, no, listen, you know God refers to nakedness as showing the backside here, showing the thighs, and so now it's got to be anything above the knees. And we start lining up where the line is, and we start making up man-made rules. And by the way, man-made rules are nothing wrong with them. Nothing wrong in and of himself. I think it's wonderful that workplaces, schools, organizations, and I don't think it wrong, personal opinion, I don't think it wrong if the church here says, hey, we want to do things here because, and using wisdom, with the, in, for all that I hate caveats, I'll add, for a caveat. The Bible doesn't give us that explicit line. We are imposing it upon ourselves because we think it helpful and wise. Now, if you don't do it, that's another discussion. But my point is, are we making up laws and rules that are not in the scripture? Are we taking principles and making up laws and rules and making it as if it is equal to the word of God? 
therein lies the reason why we have Jesus condemning the Pharisees over and over and over again for what they were doing. There's a difference between these two mindsets here. This one has the spirit bearing evidence. And you know what was said in the last two verses? Against such there is no law. What he means by that, Paul was saying to the church at Galatia, when you live according to the laws of the spirit, right? Love and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and patience, nothing condemns you. When you walk in the spirit of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, when you walk in the spirit, there is therefore now no condemnation. So here's the thing, though. Some people, because they're like, oh, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ, license to go and do whatever we want because we're in Christ. And, of course, Paul had to deal with it in the first century, right? So in Romans chapter 6, he says, you know, do you not know that you cannot sin and think that, oh, because my sin will be washed away through the blood of Jesus and Jesus' grace will overcome, that I can go ahead and live this way? You're no different than the world. You're abusing your freedoms in Christ. What you should do is let your freedom in Christ to be a beautiful light shining for those in darkness. And so you can choose self-control and impose, don't touch, don't handle. You can for yourself if you do that because you want the world to see, but you're not doing it because this is a law that God said. You're doing it maybe because you want to be a good example, because there's wisdom in what you are doing or not doing, all these things that you're doing. In other words, the Apostle Paul in one case says, hey, Timothy, for the sake of our Jewish brethren and your, and your circumstance, I want you to be circumcised. Even though the law is, is, is done away and we're in Christ, I want you to be circumcised because, you know, it's, I think it would be good for those that we're sharing the gospel with. That's consideration, thoughtfulness for the people of the world, including Jews. Titus, on the other hand, because we have certain brethren and they are imposing this mindset from their Judaistic ways, Titus, not for a second will I ever want you to think about being circumcised because we need to stand up against these false brethren who are demanding that these laws be met. I mean, you get the idea. There's this distinction about the Spirit of God in the Apostle Paul in two different circumstances and applying that Spirit of God in both of those. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're going to use the wisdom that God has employed us with to glorify Him. And we're going to see what life, when it's pure, can be in Christ. And therein lies that distinction that we are seeing here. Since we are not of this world, how do we distinguish ourselves then from this world? I think one of the ways that is obvious in Scripture is that, yeah, we don't, we don't live according to the, the material things of the flesh, right? We live in this world and we have to have food. We have to have shelter. We have to have things that take place in life. And because we're in this particular culture, which is the rich, one of the richest in the world, right? It's been a very wealthy culture for over a century, seems like, or close to a century now. When we look at us, it's, it's very difficult 
to talk about materialism because we're so materialistic. In other words, when I look at what I think is, is a, a less than, um, not austere, but very different way than a materialism, someone else could look at me saying, Mitch, look at you talking about this, <laughs> right? Some could actually tell me that they, they could spend less money in 10 years than I did on this one piece of article of clothing. And like, Mitch, you, you, need, to be, you need to back off talking about materialism. So we're in a different context that we live in. But I can guarantee you there are individuals that get caught up in material things and what we stand out with the world is that, hey, we're in this world, but we're not of it. In fact, we can use the material blessings just as Steve was mentioning this morning that we have brethren out of their own love for God and for his children, for this church family here, says, but I don't want you guys knowing who it is. I just want to do it because I love you. And share what, what God has blessed them with. Just the way you all are sharing what you are so enriched by and blessed by through your material things with those who are neighbors here in Franklin that don't have that blessing that David was talking about. That's what Paul is talking about, this wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 and see it as he's, as he's writing to the church now and how we can follow this, this pattern, if you will, of, of living in the Spirit of God this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, According to the grace which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. Okay? He's not making up specific laws, specific rules, right? But he's given a, a, a spirit. Let each one of you take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. If your works are based upon the flesh, it's going to be burned up. That's basically what he's saying. And he's using actual physical elements to make the point of what it's like and unto when you live by the flesh. One, One more time. Because it will be revealed by, revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Although he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You might be saved, but what is your works? Worthless. It doesn't pass the test. But you build your foundation on Jesus Christ and how you live. How do you live? You live according to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of this world. You live based upon the gospel message, not upon your own gospel. And that's what he's showing here. In addition to having this materialistic mindset that that employs itself in a variety of ways, including materialistic ways of, of creating laws, is this idea of being busy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in fact, he goes on 
to make this point of, of what we need to be doing and how we need to be living our lives, and particularly verse 5 of this text. If you go on, he says, let a man so consider us, right? After he's telling them, here's the way we are working, planting and watering, or yeah, yeah planting seeds and watering them and letting God give the increase. Consider us, right, the apostles, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Paul being judged by fellow brethren is a small thing, whether it's you or by a human court. In fact, Paul says in the latter part of verse 3, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself. In other words, I think I'm all good, yet I am not justified by that. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, he says, just as no one can judge you and I can't even judge myself, even if I think myself good, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come from God. That's what he's saying. If you're going to be in this world but not of it, where's your heart at? What does it look like when you live your day-to-day living? How do you incorporate your life with your spouse, with your parent, with your child, with your sibling? If you're by yourself, your co-workers, with your family, with your friends, with your brethren... How do you labor with each other in the cause of Christ? For each other, against each other. What are you doing? He says, you might even think yourself good with yourself. Paul says, but I don't even do that. Just because you think yourself to be good because you've done all these things, right? I'm like the Essenes. I'm living here. I'm good. Don't judge yourself. You go on and serve the Lord, waiting on him, that is. Now, here's the reality then. This is the last slide we're going to look at. When you start living this way, you're going to be hated on both sides. I'll tell you very clearly. For some in the world, when you don't live like this, like the world, the world looks at you as crazy. So no disrespect to my friends of years gone by, but my nickname when I became a Christian and went back to Hawaii was Reverend. They didn't know how to look at me. I honestly did not know how to deal with my own friends in Hawaii. Mitchell, what happened to you, man? And so I was reverent because I didn't do all that they did. The things that I used to do, I was not living that way. On the flip side, I give a sermon, and I say to my brethren, dancing in and of itself is not sinful. All right, now, Mitch, you're just like the world. I got hit on both sides by the world and my own brethren. John 15, I want you to read this and see the application of it. The the application is specifically dealing with the world, but we've just read passages where you can even have that judgment by brethren. We read Colossians chapter 2. We read over here in 1 Corinthians. Look at the text. One more time, just as Jesse had read for us in in John, I'm going to read it again, but this time particularly verse 19. I'm back up to verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me 
before it hated you. Well, who hated Jesus? He says the world hated him, but you know who specifically hated him that is written in scripture over and over and over again? Religious Jews, his own brethren, hated him, wanted him dead. They actually made the means possible for him to be on that cross. The Romans, as far as soldiers, may have put him up on that cross physically, but you know who put him up there? His own brethren. The world hated me. Why? Because these people, they may have been distinct as Pharisees, right? Or Sadducees or Essenes or any other group. You don't even have to have the label. Because in my mind, you don't fit the picture of who we think is distinguished from the world. So now, you don't look like this, according to the world. You don't even look like this, according to your own brethren. Jesus says to his disciples, this is what's going to happen to you because it's happened to me. One more time, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You were of the world, or if you were of the world, excuse me, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, remember, the world hates you. Remember that the world or the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake because they do not know him who sent me. This is going to happen. It happens in the body of Christ in addition to those who are of this world. And so here's the thing. It's no surprise that the world is surprised when you don't walk according to the world, right? No surprise there, because that's what we read in 1 Peter chapter 4. But when you are bearing fruit to the Lord, and your fruit doesn't look like the world, but it also doesn't look like man-made laws in the name of Christianity, you will be smeared, you will be persecuted at times, even if it's by simply a means of no one wanting to have fellowship with you, you're going to have things that happen to you. It's happened to me over the years. My trust is in the Lord, as is yours, or should be ours. And when that happens, your light is going to shine upon darkness because you are lights set on a hilltop. It cannot be hidden. And when you shine it, it's going to expose all kinds of darkness, even darkness that appears as light. It'll shine. But there are going to be people, when you live this way, distinct from the world, distinct even why the reason why so many hate the church today. Remember the sermon I gave, maybe, I don't know, half a year, a year ago, of why so many in the world looks at the church and look at the church as full of hypocrites? Because we have all kinds of man-made teachings and we do all kinds of things that are not in scripture they say and some of it is true, some of it is wrong. But the point being is that it doesn't look like Jesus. And we see a lot of Jesus in here. A lot of examples of his life, what he did and how we can follow that as being distinct and being true lights. Here's what he says. When you bear fruit, you're going to reflect his light. 
you're going to reflect his image. And when you do that, you will be hated. Hated because it's not like the way of the world and hated even in the name of God. But they don't know that the God who sent Jesus Christ also called you into his light. That's the distinction I'm talking about. I think what sometimes some of us want are, we want the steadfast, exact rule, you know, like whether it's Florida College, which I think I'm perfectly fine with the Florida College rule. If it's, I don't know, if when you sit down, it's one inch past the kneecap. I'm cool with all these rules. As long as we know, that's what we've made up. What I'm not good with is when we don't have the spirit of Christ. I can guarantee you right now, as surely as I stand here, you and I will be judged if we don't have that spirit. And we will be condemned. Our works will not pass the test. You can have all the rules you want. You'll still lose your soul if you don't have the spirit of God. And so this morning, when we talk about we're in this world but not of the world, note the distinction from both sides. Maybe in the future we can look at more specifics along these lines. But I want you to see that this fundamental truth is so crucial to being in the world but not of the world. Now, if you're here this morning, I want you to recognize this is the kingdom that gives hope for people who are lost in sin. They're not weighed down the way the Jews would weigh others down. Neither... Are they walking according to the ways of the world, but calling it Christianity, right? What you have is a truly distinct light-following path that you're on with God, explicit in Scripture, many, many, many times in Scripture. Is that the way you're walking? 